Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I just want to share a little bit this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, and it's about leadership. It's about leadership. And if we look around us, both in the world and in the church... One of the greatest crises we have and one of the greatest needs we have is, is a need for leadership, good leadership. Um, there's a lot of um, strong leadership, but um, what we need is really good leadership. In, in, a, in a very real sense, um, South Africa, the world, and, and big parts of the church are in a leadership crisis in the sense that um, our leadership has let us down. Um, and, and, and I see a pattern of people becoming very cynical and skeptical about leadership because of this pattern of being let down um, over a long period of time. Um, there's been a lot of leadership failure for, for many years. And I think there's always been these leadership failures, but I think we're just so much more aware of them now because of the Internet. We know everything of what's going on around the world. And um, we see all these massive crises and we see all um, the suffering. And much of it comes from bad leadership decisions, often very selfish leadership decisions. And, um, you know, I, I think all of us are, you know, tempted at times to become negative about leadership. And about leaders, and um, you know, it's it's something that that God's word, especially in this passage, speaks a lot into. Um, just a, maybe a few examples. This past week, there was a presidential um, consultation where three of the past state presidents of South Africa came together and said, "Listen, you guys, we're in a crisis, and the crisis is because our current president is not upholding the constitution." Now, these, these are three past presidents that are saying this. Um, I, in this past week, I went down to the Cape, and um, uh, one of the, probably one of the elders of the church in South Africa, uh, Pastor Chris Lodewijk, he's almost 80 years old now. Um, I think he was raised in the um, Assemblies of God and the RGS, and... Um, He's retired now, but he, but he ministers a lot to other ministers and to church groups. And, and, he, and he was saying how almost every single church group, um, and especially the Pentecostal charismatic church groups that he works with, are experiencing leadership crises. And um, he says it's, it's not a new thing. He says it's been going on for years. It's going, been going on for decades. And... Leadership is, is uh, God works through leaders. That's the reality. You, you, you go and look throughout the Bible, God always works through leaders. And, you know, we've, we've got to trust God not only to, to have good leaders, but to actually be good leaders, all of us. And, and I especially want to speak to us, you know, sitting here today. I mean, you guys, if I look across you, you know, all of you can probably read and write. All of you... I mean, the kind of people who come to Joburg generally are, are highly competent people. Um, and um, we must trust the Lord that we will be able to be a counterculture to what's going on in our culture at the moment. A counterculture, something different, where the world is so skeptical and even cynical about leadership. We must show them what leadership and community can be when it's done God's way. We must be that breath of fresh air where people look at us and say, well, they're not perfect. You know, just like us, they're not perfect either, but, but they're doing something different. There's something else going on there that makes it different, that makes it okay. Um, we're going to, um, starting in August, we're going to finally start with weekly services and, and launch our Santon Church plant. And this has been something that has been coming on for quite a while. Uh, we started off with uh, 
once a month services about two years ago, a bit more than two years ago. And for the more than, more than a year now, we've been doing services twice a month, the, the worship evening. T- tonight is another one, and um, Steph's gonna, Stefan Cronier is going to be preaching. Um, but in, in, in August, we're gonna, beginning August, we're going to launch it. And the reason behind it is we, we are a, a church movement that wants to plant churches. Our vision is to reach nations and generations through disciple-making, leadership development, and church planting. And we believe that in order to effectively reach um, our communities, we must plant churches in them, local churches in the communities. You know? In other words, we're not just going to try and develop a mega church, you know, one mega church to try and service, um, help service the city with, along with all the other churches, but we want to plant churches in different communities. Uh, and therefore, we need to raise up leaders uh, in, in those communities. And um, Lauren and Stefan, who are sitting here in the front, um, they're going to be the sort of taking the. They're going to be the point people taking the lead in the Santon plant. And um, that's why today also we're going to ordain them um, as deacons. Uh, they've, they, they're already the, the district leaders in the Santon district, um, and they've been that for, for quite a long time. Uh, taking the lead there, but we just want to make it official, and we want to ordain them as as deacons, and um, they're going to be the face of of the congregation there. And how what do we want to do in terms of of church planting in the city? Joburg's a massive city, right? How many millions of people do we have in Joburg? Can't remember how, ma- how many millions, but it's probably around ten million already. It's a massive city, and it's growing by, I'm told, by uh, around. 100,000 people per month. That's a massive growth rate. So every bit more than a year, you get more than a million people added. Uh, the world is urbanizing. People are coming from all over to cities, especially and actually disproportionately young people coming to cities. Um, often cities are where the jobs are, the opportunities are. Um, and the church isn't growing as fast as the city. That's a reality. That's a reality. The world is coming to the cities, but the church doesn't want to come to the cities. The cities are not always easy places, you know, especially center cities. I mean, if you go to center city, Joburg, um, I'm not sure how many churches are there. So, Lauren and Steph aren't, you know, they're, they're not full-time uh, in the ministry. They are part-time. Uh, Stefan is still working. Lauren is a mum, and as you can see, she's pregnant with their second child. Uh, how many weeks? 32 weeks. So very soon, number two is going to show up. And um, But more and more, what is probably going to happen, you know, if we're serious about planting churches, we cannot just follow the normal traditional model of, you know, full-time pastors. We're going to all of us have to be leaders and be willing to, to take the lead um, in the church. And, um, you know, that's part of what, what we're doing this morning. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 from verse 8 to 16. And uh, it's specifically about deacons, but I think all of us, we're going to find, are going to learn quite a lot of, um, from it. It says, deacons likewise, in fact, let me read from up there. Deacons, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his, to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct conduct themselves in, the, in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all uh, question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, 
was taken up in glory. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is living and powerful. And that your word is ever relevant to our lives. And we want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and apply your inspired word to our lives. In Jesus' name. That you'll come and apply your inspired word to every area of our lives. You'll come and convict us, Lord, and come and help us to grow and become more like Jesus. We just consecrate ourselves to you, Lord. We want to come and open up our hearts and make ourselves vulnerable to you and say, have your way in us, in Jesus' name. If you that prayer resonates with you and you, you feel the word that was brought earlier this morning, um, that we, God wants us, us to make ourselves vulnerable to him, if, if that speaks to you, I just want you to close your eyes and just actually speak to him about it and say, Lord, I'm, I open up my heart and I make myself vulnerable to you, just in your own words. Amen. So, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 to 16, um, if I had to sum it up, uh, it, it's about leadership, but if I had to sum it up with, with one word, I would sum it up with the word godliness. Maybe as I read it, you could see um, the whole theme of godliness coming through in this passage. And I, I just want to discuss it under three headings. Firstly, godliness as leadership requirement. Then secondly, godliness as general requirement. And then godliness as revealed secret. Godliness as leadership requirement, godliness as general requirement, and godliness as, as revealed secret. So let's, let's look at godliness as leadership requirement. The, the word deacon used there is, literally means servant. And, and twice in that passage, um, in verse 10 and verse 13, it, it talks about serving. It says, let them be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. And in verse, verse 13, it says, um, those who have served well obtain an excellent standing and confidence, assurance or confidence in, in, in the faith. And, and being a, a deacon, it's a position of service, like all Christian ministry positions. That's why Christian, uh, Christian leaders are called ministers. The word minister literally means servant. A minister is a servant. And all forms of Christian leadership are forms of service. Forms of service. And, and, and we see that um, reflected in, 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 in our God whom we reflect. So 1 Timothy 3 verse, um, verse 8 to 13 gives us sort of three general types of qualifications for a deacon and a set of outcomes which by extension apply to all Christian leaders. So the first one, the, the three general types are um, firstly behavior, Qualifications, then belief qualifications, and then um, those behavior and belief qualifications being tested. But being tested over time. In other words, there being a track record being built up of, um, of that. So let's just quickly look at that. The first thing it says is that a deacon must be worthy of respect. The word literally means must be serious. Must, in other words, mustn't take serious matters lightly, but must be worthy of respect. Worthy of respect in, in how they live and, um, and and how they act. And the, the interesting thing is it mentions there um, in verse 8 uh, the qualifications for, for, for male deacons and then in, in verse 11 also for, for women. And it's exactly the same. It repeats uh, four things that are parallel to one another just in different words and they sort of mutually interpret one another. For both it's said that they must be worthy of respect. And the same word is is used in the, in, in the Greek. Um, and then it gives three negatives. It says, they must be worthy of respect, they must um, not be insincere. Now, the, the NIV translates it as a positive, they must be sincere, but actually literally in the Greek, it's, they must not be insincere. They must not be insincere. And what, what the word there is, uh, logos, logos, some of you might recognize as the word for word or message or speech. logos means double speech or double tongue. So you must not be insincere in, in your speech, insincere in how you communicate. Um, you, uh, with, with, uh, in verse 11 with the women, it says not being malicious talkers. <laughs> Literally in the Greek, it uses the word diabolos. Diabolical, you know. The, 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 the name of Satan is uh, uh, diabolos. 
the slanderer, the malicious talker. And I was not being like the devil, not slandering and not being double-tongued, you know, like a, like a, a snake that has like a forked tongue. That's why the snake is the image of the devil, because he has this forked tongue. Do you know that the devil doesn't only lie? Because if he only lied, we'd never believe him. In fact, the devil often tells 80-90% truth, and then he just throws in those few percent lies. But the problem with lies, why, why does he do that? To deceive us. I mean, if, if you... Did you know that rat poison is about... Nine, more than 95% nutritious food for rats. It only has a very small percentage of actual, actual poison in it. Because if it was pure poison, the rat would smell, there's something wrong here, not eat it. And the devil knows that trick. So he, he gives us a lot of truth, but then that he throws in some lies. Because if it's just pure, obvious lie, then we won't fall for it. And that's what it's saying we should not do. And that's what it's saying we should not be like. We should not be double-tongued. We should not talk a little bit of truth and a little bit of lies. We should not say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And um, the reality is all of us are often tempted to do that, right? Isn't that so? Think to yourself. Just be very honest with yourself. You know, When was the last time you told a lie? I can guarantee you it's not that far back if you're honest with yourself. If you're lying to yourself, you'll think it's quite far back. <laughs> right? The reality is, unfortunately, as fallen human beings, we all lie. Why do we lie? Because we want people to think better of us than we are. Or we want to manipulate people. Or we want to um, get people to do what we want them to do. Ulterior motives. And this is exactly what Paul says deacons or leaders uh, in general should not do. And, and it, it also it refers to our, you know, it, it exposes our motives. Now, now, here's the thing. Why it's so important, our speech and what we say is so important in leadership. Here's the thing. You can only, let me put it the other way around. People can only follow you as far as they can trust you. People can only follow you as far as they can trust you. People cannot follow you further than they can trust you. And, and that's where one of the big problems in our government is at the moment. People have started losing trust, losing confidence, losing faith in our government because it seems like not everything that's being said is true. And, and one of the worst things that, that you can do, the temptation is there, you know, we get things wrong, we do things wrong, and then we lie to cover it up. And, and, and the problem is, <laughs> once you tell a lie, once you start covering things up, you have to keep on telling that same lie to all the different people. So you have to have a good memory, because you have to remember, okay, what, what's the lie I told about this situation? What's the lie I told about that situation? Event, you can't do that. Eventually, it comes out that you're lying, and people, you start being insincere. You start being double-tongued. You start telling different lies to different people, and people start realizing, no, 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 no. He's lying to us here. And people lose trust in you. People lose confidence in you. You lose credibility. And people can only follow you as far as they can trust you. So people can no longer follow you. Because they, don't know, they no longer trust you. Um, the second thing, uh, or the third thing it says is, uh, not addicted to much wine. To, to the ladies it says temperate, which is the same thing must be temperate, not, in other words, be moderate in everything, temperate in everything. The word they're addicted to, um, you know, in the Greek means constantly setting your mind on certain things, constantly being um, drawn to certain things, and constantly being occupied with certain things. In other words, certain things having control over you. And people know when they look at our lives as leaders, they know whatever controls us will influence them. And, and I mean, you know, addicted to wine here is just one example of substance abuse, of something controlling our lives. So if we're leaders, we cannot allow things like that, substances, to control our lives because whatever controls our lives will influence other people's lives. 
Temperate means sober-minded. We especially cannot allow things that affect our minds, our sobriety, to enslave us and take us captive. Because leadership is all about decision-making. Right? Leadership is all about decision-making. You are only as good a leader as the decisions you make. And if you are abusing substances that affect your sobriety and your ability to make sound, sober decisions, then all those unsound, unsober decisions are going to affect the people that you lead. And that's why the Bible says, don't be addicted. Don't become a slave to these substances that, that destroy your sobriety and your, your decision-making ability. Um, the, the fourth one is uh, not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, to, to the women in, in verse 3, verse 11, it says, trustworthy in everything. The reality is all leaders have to work with finances. That's part of leadership. In, in, in the early church, the deacons were often the guys who worked with the money and who made sure that uh, certain projects were launched and were run you know, uh, smoothly and all kinds of other forms of leadership that, that they did as well. But as a leader, you, you inevitably have to work with money. And, and what Paul is saying is you, if you're greedy for money, then you're going to abuse your position to enrich yourself rather than bless the people that God has placed you in that position to serve. And in, in general, all three of these things you know, are about you know, not being controlled, our behavior not being controlled by lies, not being insincere, not being controlled by substances, not being addicted, and not being controlled by money. Not having that kind of idolatry in our lives. The second thing, so the first thing is, is the, those behavioral things, worthy of respect, not insincere, not addicted, not greedy. The second thing is, 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 is beliefs, because beliefs determine behavior. So Paul says, you know, we must hold to the deep truths. Of the faith. We must hold to the deep truths of the faith. Um, and the word there, um, when it says you must hold to the deep truth of the faith, it's just the, the normal word for having or holding something. But, but it's, um, it's in the continuous tense. In other words, the, the, the translation of the, the NIV, you know, holding firmly to the deep truths is actually a very good translation. Holding continuously, consistently to the deep truths of, of, of the faith. And then it says with a, with a clear conscience. Now, um, our conscience is that part of us which God has hardwired us with, all human beings. Um, whether we're Christians or not, we all have a conscience. Um, Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, let me quickly read that. It says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law by, do by nature things required by the law, they are Lord for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law is written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even excusing or defending them. So, the word conscience, con is the, from the Latin word with, and science, the Latin word knowledge, con science, with knowledge. God has hardwired us, we're born with knowledge of right and wrong, and that's our conscience. And our conscience is either accusing us when we do things which we know are wrong, or excusing us when we do things that we know are right. And it says that as leaders we must hold fast, firmly, consistently hold to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Why with a clear conscience? Because you can accept the truth of Scripture without living it. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Let me, let me read you one example, and if you're taking notes, you can maybe write this down. Uh, and that's in James chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to what it says here. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe there is one God? Good. In other words, you believe the truth. Good. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe that and tremble. The demons believe the truth. They believe that there's one God. They believe the truth, but they don't live by it. They, cannot, they don't walk in it in a clear conscience. And, and that's what it says. Us as leaders, we have to hold fast, consistently, continuously hold fast to the truths, the deep truths of the faith. 
with a clear conscience because we don't only believe it, we live it. We walk in it. We obey it. Um, so behavior, uh, our, our, our beliefs, and then it says it must be tested. And that's in, in verse, um, let me just see which verse it is. Verse 10, it says, They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, they can serve. Let them serve as deacons. They must be tested. And then it mentions, actually, that that tested, once again, is a continuous thing. In other words, as leaders, we need to build up a track record of faithfulness. A track record of, you know, in our behavior and our beliefs, obeying God. Of being tested. And then it mentions the most important area or place or sphere of life in which that test happened in your family. It says, a deacon must be the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, it's a one woman man. Uh, that, that's what it says. It must be a one woman man. Uh, must manage his children and his household well. Here's, here's the reality you can impress from a distance, but you can only impact up close. You can impress people from a distance, but you can only impact people up close. But the problem is when you come up close, people can see you warts and all. And you can, you can fool many people, but it's a bit harder to fool your family because they're up close. So that's why consistently the Bible holds up family life as the test of someone's character. It's because it's so up close and personal. It's so up close and personal. Um, you cannot hide things. You cannot hide your true character from your family. And that's why it says, in our families, we have to build up a track record of faithfulness, a track record of right behavior and right belief. Uh, and, and, and that's the main area in which we must be tested. Um, a, a Christian leader must be a one-woman man. You know, it's faithfulness in your marriage, faithfulness to your marriage partner. We must keep, must walk in the covenant of marriage. And this is just one way in which we can be countercultural in, in this world. This world doesn't respect covenant, doesn't even understand covenant. To me, most people in the world, marriage is just a contract. You know, it's, it's not a covenant. It's not a spiritual covenant that you know, is for better or worse until death, death do us part. It's you know, for better, not for worse, until inconvenience do us part. Right? That's the reality, you know. Even, even in the church, you know. Often that's the reality, that we, 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 don't have, we don't understand that level of commitment anymore, many of us. And the world certainly doesn't. But if we want to be leaders, that is the level of commitment that we must commit to. God's unconditional covenant commitment to us must be reflected in our commitment to one another. We must be like God. We must be godly in our commitment to one another. Uh, manage children well. Being a parent is basically being a disciple maker. And, and, and if I cannot disciple the pliable, um, very open children who live with me every day, if I cannot disciple them, how can I disciple other people? Right? That's the challenge that I as a parent have to face. I am discipling my children, but how am I discipling them? You know? They inevitably pick up what I have. <laughs> you know? So I can, I can preach measles, but if I have chicken pox, then that's what they're going to get. <laughs> right? That's what they're going to get. Because discipleship is, is, is not just something that is taught, it's something that is caught. Um, and that's why, you know, let the track record show in your family, but then also in your household. You know, manage your, you know, must be good financial stewards and all that. In other words, in all areas of our family, we must prove our godliness through our track record. That track record must be there. And then it also mentions two outcomes, and I don't want to say too much about that, but it just mentions excellent standing. That's an external outcome. In other words, those who have served well will have an excellent standing in the community. If you do serve well, God uses that to give you respect and a standing and a position of leadership in the community. And we see that with the first deacons, guys like Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and those guys. I mean, Philip, 
was the guy who basically planted the church in this, uh, the Samaritan church. He was the first cross-cultural, in a sense, church planter. He planted the church in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. You can read it for yourself. Now, as deacons are not just, um, you know, they served at tables, but then they got a standing uh, and, and, and which, which allowed them to serve in, in, in other ways as well, preach the gospel. But, it, but it's an external standing in the community. But then it also says, and great confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, an internal thing. In other words, here's what I want you to see, and this, is, this applies to all of us, in whatever way we serve, while we are serving. God is doing things to give us a standing, a place in the community, and God is strengthening our faith, our confidence in, in Christ Jesus. While you are serving, God is working in you and around you. You want God to work in you and around you? Serve. That's what He does. He uses your serving to work in you and around you. Okay. So, my, my first point was, godliness, being like God, is a leadership requirement in the Bible. But godliness is more than just a leadership requirement in the Bible. Um, when in verse um, 14 and 15, it says, let me just read that. It says in verse 15, you know, I'm writing the instructions to you so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And, and that word conduct themselves is, once again, it's a, it's a present infinitive, which means it's continuous, which means it's habitually live. Now, now, here's the thing I want you to see. Why is Paul writing these instructions, including the instructions in this chapter about elders and deacons? Why does he say he's, reading, he's writing those instructions to us? He doesn't, note, he doesn't say so that deacons and elders will know how to conduct themselves in the church of God. What does he say? How we as people in general ought to conduct themselves in the church. In other words, you can't stay and say, word, preach it, any. We'll be watching you guys, you leaders. Any, you're a leader. Uh, Steph, Lauren, we're going to be watching you, making sure you live up to the requirements. Got our eyes on you. They're checking you out. Yes, of course. Do keep us accountable. But what Paul is saying there, leaders should conduct themselves, continuously, habitually conduct themselves in this way because they are to lead by example because all members of the church are supposed to conduct themselves in this way. Godliness is not just a leadership requirement in the church. It's a general requirement. All Christians are supposed to be godly, to be like God. In terms of their character. So, this doesn't only apply to leaders, it applies to all of us. And, and why? Why are all members of the church, why are all Christians required to be godly? Well, it says so. In verse 15, it tells us, it says, uh, you know, I'm writing these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you might know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is God's family, God's household. It's God's church. In other words, we belong to God. We belong to God. And it specifically says the church of, the church belonging to the living God, as opposed to all the dead gods out there. There are many dead gods in this world, in all kinds of different religions. But there's only one, only one living God. In other words, what, what, what Paul is saying there is, we serve a God who is a different God. We don't serve the dead gods of the world. We serve the living God of the Bible. We serve a different God. But we don't only serve a different God. We serve a God who is different. You get that? We don't only serve a different God. We serve a God who is different. And we as the church of the living God, of this different God, must be as different from the world as our God is from the gods of the world. We must reflect His image, His character. Because He is different, we must be different. And as He is, so must we be. That's why God created us in the beginning. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, to reflect our image in the world. That was man's created purpose. 
So godless, godliness means piety, to be, to, uh, you know, being like God. The other thing is it says the church of the living God. The word church, in the Greek it's ecclesia. Um, ek means out of and kaleo means to call. So that, ecclesia comes from those two words, to call out of. To call out of. What is the church? What is the church? The church is the ecclesia. The church is the group of people, the community of people that have been called out of the world and to, to God. Just like in the Exodus. God called His people, Israel, out of Egypt, out from under the rule of Pharaoh, to come and worship Him in the desert and come and submit to His rule. We're the called out ones. And we're called out to be with God and also to um, belong to Him. We belong to God by being called out of the world by Him. Now, how, how do we do this? How, how, do we, um, how do we be godly? Now, we see that godly is a, godliness is a leadership requirement, but we see it's also that leadership requirement just respe- reflects the general requirement. How can we be godly? Because, let me put it to you bluntly, you know. If, if you're listening to this and, and, and say, uh, hearing me say, um, godliness is a general requirement, and I've sort of laid out, you know, it must be worthy of respect, not insincere, not addicted, uh, not greedy, you know, holding to the truths of, of, of the faith, you know, having integrity in our family life, showing a track record of all these things in our family life. If, if you're not crushed by that, you haven't been listening very well. <laughs> if you know, like, like um, I'm not quite making it, you know, <laughs> then you haven't been listening well. And there are two ways of trying to fulfill this requirement of godliness. The first one is just to try harder. In other words, the way of almost all religions. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to build up this track record of godliness and I'm going to present it to God and say, God, accept me. Because, look, here's my track record of godliness. That's what every single other religion in the world says you must do. You come to God and you bring your track record to Him and then you accept it or reject it based on your track record. That's not what Christianity says. In verse 16, listen to what it says. It says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is correct. Here it gives us the secret to true godliness. And notice it's not just trying harder in my own strength. Hello? You can try and be godly in your own strength, but guess what? It'll fail. It'll fail. You'll try hard and you'll fail, but then because you feel like what I'm supposed to be, and my acceptance is based on my performance, you're going to have to be insincere. You're going to have to be double-tongued and sort of hide it and cover it up with what you do. Can you see, you're going to get into this vicious cycle of having to cover up everything that you're not getting right. So one way is trying harder. Willpower. You know, go for it. You know, have a a will of steel. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to be better. And let's be honest, how many of us try and be godly in that way? Right, right. That's not the biblical way of being godly. That's not the... What's a mystery? A mystery is a revealed secret. It's an open secret. And, and, and what Paul tells us, he says, you must be godly. If you want to be um, a leader in God's household, you must be godly. And then he goes on and he says, but if you want to be anyone in God's household, if you're just a member of God's household, you have to be godly. And then he says, but here's the mystery. Here's the revealed secret of how to be godly. And then he doesn't mention five steps. What does he mention? He says, the mystery from which true godliness, notice true godliness. The other forms of godliness where we try in our own strength, that's not true godliness. The mystery, the revealed secret from which true godliness flows is, he appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels, he was preached among the nations, he was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. What is that? Jesus in the gospel, people. That's what it is. It's Jesus in the gospel story. 
Jesus and the gospel are the revealed secret of true godliness. In other words, the gospel is not just Christianity 101 by which you enter the kingdom. The gospel is the means by which you grow in godliness in the kingdom. In other words, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z of the Christian faith. The gospel is not just the secret, the the revealed secret to justification. The gospel is the revealed secret to sanctification. Because when you see Jesus as the only one who has perfectly fulfilled these requirements on your behalf, so that you take not your record to God. Hello? Your record of godliness, your track record of godliness, but you take Jesus' track record of godliness to God and you accept it based on that. Then you can live a godly life, not in order to be accepted, but because you're already accepted. Now, if you... If you try and be godly in order to be accepted. If you try and be godly in order to be accepted. You're not. In other words, if you try and reflect God's image in order to be accepted. You are not serving God. You are serving yourself. You are trying to be like God apart from God in order to get God's favor. You are trying to be like God apart from God. Isn't that the problem right in the beginning in the Garden of Eden? What did the snake say to Adam and Eve? God is withholding something from you. You know, you will not surely die if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like him. You will become like him. Now the irony, like Steph was saying about a week ago, is that he already created them in his image. They were already like him. And the devil tries, I mean, this is his oldest trick in the book, people. He tries to tempt us to try and become like God without God. And so many people, when they look at the requirement of godliness, that's what they see. I must become like God, but I'm going to try and do it in my own strength apart from God. And and the gospel says no. Paul says no. Jesus and the gospel and the grace that comes through Jesus and the good news... I say this so often, but we really need to get this, you know. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. It's good news, not good advice. It's good news about what has been done to save you, not good advice about what you, what you need to do to save yourself. That's the gospel. It's about Jesus who became like us so that we can become like him. old saying, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the sons of God. The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the sons of God. Jesus became like us. He came in the flesh. He became like us so that in the same way as He did, we can become like Him. He was vindicated in the Spirit or justified in the Spirit. Through the same Spirit. That same Spirit because He died. And this vindication in the Spirit speaks speaks of His ministry which was Spirit-empowered, but especially of His resurrection which was by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life. That same Spirit who vindicated Jesus by raising Him from the dead, that very same Spirit can give us resurrection life now already. Now already. So now already we can live with the Spirit of the living God inside of us. So that now already Jesus' resurrection life can manifest in us and through us. And His godliness can be portrayed in our lives. You know, In, in, verse, um, in verse 10, I think, let me just see it again. Verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The NIV actually translates it, I think, wrongly, because 
literally the word there, which is translated deep truths, is, is the word in the Greek mysterion. Exactly the same word used in verse 16. Mysterion, the mystery of the of true godliness. It's that very same word. It's the mystery of the faith. What is that mystery? Verse 16 tells us. It's Jesus and the gospel. Jesus and the gospel is the revealed secret, the open secret to godliness. It says, that's why it says there, that right at the heart of lead the leadership requirement of godliness is you do it by faith in the mystery of the faith. You do it by faith in that mystery, the mystery of the gospel. In other words, here's the thing. All sin reveals in us a lack of faith in Jesus. All sin, at its root, at its heart, is a lack of faith in Jesus. Let me explain it this way. Uh, it says, do not be insincere. Do not be double-tongued. In other words, do not tell different stories, you know. Why? Why would we lie? Why would we be double-tongued? Because we want people to think better of us than we are. We want people to accept us. You know, if... if, if um, you know, someone, uh, you know, if I said, you know, I'm going to pray for you, and someone says, you know, did you pray for me? And I'm like, yes, yes, no, I prayed for you. <laughs> why, why would I say that? Because I want them to think better of me than I am. Because I'm afraid of rejection. Because my acceptance is not built on my faith in Jesus Christ, but in this person's acceptance of me. Can you see how the fact that I'm being insincere and lying and double-tongued actually reveals a lack of faith in Jesus? Why would I be greedy for dishonest gain? Because I think, I believe my security comes from money rather than from Jesus, who takes care of me and provides. Can you see how greed reveals a lack of faith in Jesus Christ? And that's the way we grow in godliness, by having more faith in Jesus and His saving gospel, the mystery of true godliness. That's how the gospel not only saves us at the beginning, but continues to save us as we believe in Jesus and that He's enough. That He's enough. So, just in closing, if you want a perfect leader, you better look to Jesus. <laughs> I'm not a perfect leader. But the gospel actually frees me to be able to admit that. Because I, I, I cannot be perfect, and I don't have to be perfect. And, and, and you guys don't follow me because I'm perfect. You follow me in spite of the fact that I'm not perfect. And you only follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. But because I have, I'm not saved by my leadership credentials and my good performance and my behavior and all that kind of stuff, I can be honest about the fact that I make many mistakes. And then you can know when am I making a mistake and you, and you shouldn't follow me and when you should follow Jesus in the other direction and when am I actually obeying Jesus and, and you can be safe to follow me. So I'm going to just ask that we hand out the elements of the communion. Um, and, I, and I want us to see this as an opportunity to take hold of those great truths in the mystery, the mystery of the gospel. Take hold of them for ourselves and apply them to our lives. Because this broken bread and this cup represent Jesus' broken body and His shed blood by which we proclaim His death until He comes again. He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me until I come again. And how is He going to come again? Because He's risen. Because He's risen from the dead. He's already overcome death. So I want us to take these elements of the communion and I want, them, I want us to use them together and I want us to say, yes, here's what I want us to say and I want you to listen very carefully to this. Every sin that we commit, every sin that we have committed, every sin that we're going to commit, Jesus died for them. And one of the steps in growing in godliness is saying, Jesus, I love you so much. 
I don't want to enjoy the things that you had to die for. I love you so much, I don't want to enjoy and find pleasure in and be entertained by the things that you had to suffer and die for. The things that you had to suffer to save me from. Lord, I realize that some of these things, I'm actually finding pleasure in them. I'm still finding pleasure in them. And Lord, I repent of it. In other words, here's the thing. Religious, moralistic repentance happens because we realize we've broken the law. True, godly repentance happens because we realize we've broken God's heart. Are you sorry because you've broken God's law? Or are you sorry because you've broken God's heart? Are you doing it out of legalism? Or are you doing it out of real relationship? I want you to just take those elements of the communion and realize that this represents the body and the blood of the one who loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. And I want you to allow that love to inspire you to be like him, to live for him and to be like him. And, and you won't get it right perfectly, but that's also why the, the blood is there, is to, so you can receive forgiveness when you don't get it right, when you, when you do fail. But don't just repent because you've broken God's law. Repent because you've broken His heart. Because that's true repentance. Repentance based on love. So just close your eyes and just for a few minutes do business with the Lord in your own heart. And say, Lord, I want to be godly. I want to be like you. And I thank you that you make it possible through the gospel, through your Son. Thanks for listening to this message from Shafa Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.